So just following on uh, the theme of my prayer, I thought that this morning we could look at the story in the Bible of the mother who did not want to be a mother, who did not ask to be a mother, who in fact had no choice about whether or not she wanted to be a mother. And the story is found in Genesis chapter 16, and if you have your Bible with you, you might like to turn to that chapter. In the introduction to her lovely children's storybook Bible, Sally Lloyd-Jones points out that the best thing about the stories in the Bible is that they are all true. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story, the story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. Now, in Genesis chapter 16, we're fairly early on in that big story, but just let me remind you quickly of where we find ourselves. In Genesis chapter 1, we read how God creates a man and a woman to live with him and walk with him in the most intimate relationship. But in Genesis chapter 3, we read how they turn from God and attempt to live their lives in God's world without any reference to God. They try to be like God themselves, and so they become separated from God due to their own sin. It's not simply a story that happened, it's one that happens. It's our story, not just the story of Adam and Eve. From Genesis 4 through Genesis 11, we read about the spread of sin in both breadth and depth to the point where God destroys all human life and begins again with Noah, whose first act on leaving the ark is to get drunk. And so in Genesis chapter 12, we read the beginnings of God's plan to rescue the human race back to himself, a plan hidden in the heart of God before the universe began. God's plan is to create a special nation through whom eventually will come his very own son, our Lord Jesus, God come in the flesh. And so we read how God, out of the blue, appears to a very ordinary man called Abram and his wife Sarai, later renamed by God Abraham and Sarah. And he tells Abram in chapter 12, leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. We read about how Abram believes God, and he goes to the land of Canaan that God shows him. And there, there are all sorts of obstacles that get in the way of God's promises, including times of unbelief on Abram's part, which you can read about in Genesis 12 through 15. But all the time, God is promising Abram, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you a son. You are going to be a blessing. Now we pick up the story in Genesis chapter 16. Let's have a look. God's word says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. 
Go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my servant in your arms, and now that she knows she's pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your servant is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will so increase your descendants that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now with child and you will have a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. Hagar gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. And that is why the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. It is still there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. This is God's word. So this morning I'd like to spend some time considering the life of this remarkable woman named Hagar. She's got an interesting name, although it's notable in this passage that no one uses her name or even speaks to her except one character, as we'll see. Did you notice that in the first part of the passage? Abram and Sarai don't speak directly to Hagar. She isn't given a name. She's simply just your maidservant, or my maidservant, or her maidservant. Still the experience of many workmen and cleaners in South Africa today, maybe even your experience, that because you are unseen, you're not even given a name. Or if you are given a name, it's not your real name, it's a Western name so that other people can pronounce it. Hagar is a triple loser. Firstly, she's a woman living in a man's world. Actually, Sarai is also a woman living in a man's world. In verse 1, she's introduced to us as Abram's wife. So she too has a difficult time living in a man's world, and you would have expected that maybe their shared experience would bring these two ladies together. But no, our fallen society perpetuates and multiplies barriers between people. So that number two, Hagar is a slave, while Sarai is a free woman. And third, Hagar is a foreigner, an Egyptian. 
while Sarai is part of God's chosen people, an Israelite, uh, even though there aren't actually any Israelites at this point. We're only beginning the story of Israel. But a triple loser, a woman, a slave, a foreigner. Perhaps there might be people here this morning who are carrying labels, uh, labels that separate you from the rest of so-called normal, respectable society. Labels that place you on the outside. Labels of marital status, of gender, of race, of mistakes you've made, even a particular sin. Single, unmarried, childless, divorced, gay. Perhaps this morning you feel that you're on the outside looking in, in which case keep listening to the story of this outsider, this loser, this nobody. As I said, Hagar is no more than a piece of property so that when Sarai sees that her womb is closed, she decides that her and Abram can use Hagar's womb instead. Notice that Hagar gets no say in the matter whatsoever. Her words or thoughts are not recorded. Now, you can understand Sarai's pain because in that society, having a large number of children made you a successful wife and having none made you a dismal failure. Sarah has waited over 10 years for God's promise to be fulfilled and there is nothing worse than waiting. Some of you will know the Dr. Sears book, Oh, the Places You'll Go. It's wonderful for small kids. It's great to give to your teenage children when they're leaving home. Dr. Sears speaks about all of the different things that can come across uh, your path. And he speaks about the fact that sometimes in life you head towards a most useless place, the waiting place for people just waiting waiting for a train to go or a bus to come or a plane to go or the mail to come or the rain to go or the phone to ring or the snow to snow or waiting around for a yes or a no or waiting for their hair to grow. Everyone is just waiting. Maybe this morning there are folk here who are waiting and have been waiting for an awfully long time. Maybe you're waiting to have children, waiting to get married, waiting for your marriage to get better, waiting for a job, waiting for a situation to change. And in that situation, it is so easy to do what Sarai does and take matters into your own hands to invoke God's name and yet do something on your own initiative and in your own strength. Notice that while Sarai speaks about, uh, she speaks about God, but she doesn't speak to God. Verse 2, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my maidservant. Sarai takes God's name on her lips, but her heart is far from him. Notice the gaping chasm between her intellectual, theological belief on one hand, the Lord has kept me from having children, God is sovereign, and her day-to-day -day practice on the other hand, go sleep with my maidservant. Now, this idea may sound awful to us, but actually it was a common and acceptable practice in the ancient world to deal with the problem of childlessness. A little bit like IVF or surrogate motherhood are acceptable solutions in our own day. 
because Hagar was Sarah's maidservant, she would have control over her and over her child in a way that she wouldn't have if Abraham had just gone and got a second wife, for example. So this was a good solution for Sarai. Sarai chooses what is logical, what is conventional, what is popular, what is easy, what is acceptable, what the rest of society would choose. But the writer very subtly lets us know that what Sarah and Abram choose is ultimately wrong. Verse 3, Sarai took her Egyptian maidservant Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. The wording, the verbs, the order is exactly the same as Genesis chapter 3. The woman took some of the fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. The writer describes these events in terms of another fall. Because Sarah's sin is the same as Adam and Eve's, a failure to believe and trust God, taking matters into her own hands, believing that she knows better than God, becoming God over her own life. It's not the fact that Sarah takes action that is wrong, but the fact that she acts without any reference to God. And so if we find ourselves in that waiting place today, the message of this passage is not don't act, don't get advice, don't apply for the job, don't speak, do nothing. The message is wait for God. Wait on God. Speak to Him. Seek Him. Ask Him what to do. He may very well tell you to do nothing and that He will act for you. Or he may call on you to do something. But we'll see in a moment that sometimes God asks us to do very difficult things indeed. Things that are even more difficult, in fact, than sitting and waiting for him to act. All of us this morning would do well to meditate on and practice Psalm 37 verse 7. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. But Sarai's plan works, which is an important warning to us that getting good results is no indication that we are doing God's will, whether that's as individuals or as a church. Just because something is a success doesn't mean that God is in it. Look at the church in Laodicea in Revelation chapter 2. Huge attendance, big budgets, large buildings are not indicators of God's blessing. One writer points out that whatever a man or woman attempts to do without God will be a miserable failure or an even more miserable success. Sarai's actions without God produce success. Hagar becomes pregnant. But now her status changes. Her and Sarai's roles and status are reversed because a pregnant slave is more valued than a barren wife. And so Hagar unwisely begins to despise her mistress. 
So interesting that after eating the forbidden fruit, Adam blames both Eve and God. Here in this passage, we have Sarai blaming Abram and God. You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my servant in your arms, and now that she knows she's pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Sarai uses a very interesting word here. She says that her maidservant has despised her, literally done her violence. But as one writer points out, this is a Freudian slip. You do know what a Freudian slip is, don't you? It's where you say one thing, but you mean your mother. Sarah accuses Hagar of doing her violence, but actually her and Abram have done violence to Hagar. But Sarai fails to see the wrong of her own actions and seethes with anger over Hagar's disdain. As John Goldingay puts it in his commentary on these verses, Abram has held another woman in his arms, and it was Sarai's idea, but she hates it, and she hates her, and she hates him, and she hates their soon-to-be child, and she hates herself, and she probably hates the God who closed her own womb, though for the moment she will hang on to that God, because she can use God to beat Abram over the head with, the way one does. The words that she speaks to Abram in verse 5 are almost a curse. May the Lord judge between you and me. And Sarai has no doubt about how God will judge in this situation. Don't we all presume that God is on our side? Someone has pointed out that some of the worst acts of evil in this world are committed by people who believe that God is on their side. Abram says to Sarai in verse 6, Your servant is in your hands. Do with her whatever you think best. Perhaps believing that Sarai will do what is best, but she does not. Instead, we read, Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. And where does an Egyptian slave head for when they're fleeing? Back to Egypt, of course, through the desert, which isn't just sand dunes everywhere, but a rocky, hilly, barren place with little bits of grass, an occasional bush, and an even less occasional spring of water. And at one of these springs, Hagar meets someone. At first, he appears just to be another ordinary man who happens to be getting water. But afterwards, she realizes that he is God himself. That always happens when people meet the angel of the Lord. At first, he seems to be just a man, but afterwards, they realize it's God. There are many angels mentioned in the Old Testament, but when we read about the angel of the Lord or the angel of God, we're to understand this as being God himself appearing in human form. And something wonderful, truly wonderful happens here. Because up to this point, no one has spoken to Hagar. No one has called her name. But now, God himself speaks to her and calls her by name. He, in fact, knows her. In verse 8, he says to her, Hagar, servant of Sarai, which makes his next two questions a little unusual, because if he knows her name and he knows her mistress, he certainly knows the answer to these questions. But like God's question to Adam, where are you? Or God's question to Cain, where is your brother? These two questions are not to help God. They're meant to help Hagar. Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where 
are you going? Those are really good questions for us this morning, aren't they? We do well to think about them from time to time, maybe often. Where have we come from? What has been our experiences of God over the last decades? And where are we going to? Hagar replies, I'm running away from my mistress Sarai. What is God's answer here? I told you there are worse things than waiting on God and trusting him to act. You might have expected some sympathy from God, but God's words to this poor lady are hard words. Verse 9, go back to your mistress, which is bad enough, and submit to her. Again, quoting John Goldingay, go back and submit to a mistress from hell and her wimp of a husband and to a God who seems to go along with both. What is going on here? God's words to Hagar would be unkind and unfair and unloving, but for the fact that they also come with a promise. Verse 10, I will so increase your descendants that they will be too numerous to count. That's why Hagar cannot return to Egypt. To return to Egypt would be to miss out on God's promise, miss out on God's plan, miss out on God himself. She is to return to Sarai, even if it's painful, because God will be with her and bless her. Notice that this is the same promise that God made to Abram, but now it's tailor-made for Hagar, this foreigner, this slave, this nobody. No other woman has received this promise. Not Sarah, not Rebecca, not Rachel, but this outcast who's been pushed out by Abram and Sarai, pushed out by God's people, pushed out by the church in one sense, receives the promise of blessing. God goes out of his way to seek and to save the lost, the poor, those who are marginalized by society. Years later, the Lord Jesus would go out into the desert to a well in Samaria and there meet another outcast, a woman, a five-time divorcee who was rejected and shunned by her community because he came to seek and save the lost. And this morning, you may have given up on God's people. You may have even given up on God himself, but he is here and he called you to church today because he wants to meet with you. He calls all of us to repent. That's what the word go back means, to turn around, to go in the other direction, not to take our lives into our own hands anymore, but to live in obedience to him. And as with Hagar, turning around is painful. Turning our lives over to Jesus is difficult. It costs us everything. We lose our lives in order to gain them. We take up our cross daily and follow him, but we gain everything. The forgiveness of sins and life with God. And sometimes God calls to us in our particular set of circumstances to things that are painful. Now let me be completely clear here. If you're in an abusive marriage this morning where your partner is beating you and your life is in danger, I'm not saying that you should not run away. That's not the message of this passage. However, 
Sometimes God calls us into situations or calls us to do things that in the short term are extremely difficult and painful, but in the long term are wondrous. He calls us to go back to the boss, maybe to go back to the marriage, maybe to go back to the job. It's painful, but he promises to be with us. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. God promises Hagar that he will be with her and be at work even in the painful situation. Look at verse 11. You are now with child and you will have a son. You shall name him Ishmael for the Lord has heard of your misery. Hagar is the first woman in the Bible to receive a promise for her unborn child, but she won't be the last. God speaks similar words to Rebekah and to the mother of Samson. But God's words to Hagar are closest to the angel's words to Mary in the New Testament. Luke chapter 1, you will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. And so Hagar and Mary stand as examples of women who obediently accept God's word and thereby become blessed and a blessing, even in the face of suffering. It's important to see that while God redeems the sinful actions of Sarai and Abram, the repercussions of what they did can be felt right up to this day. Verse 12, Ishmael will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. Which makes some Christians feel that God's plan for the descendants of Ishmael, the Arab nations, is to wipe them out because of their hatred of the Jewish people and their persecution of Christians. But if that were God's plan for the Arab people, he would have left Hagar and her unborn child to die in the wilderness. Instead, he rescues them. In fact, in Genesis 21, we see how God rescues them a second time. And we're specifically told in that chapter that God was with the boy as he grew up. The tragedy of the war between the Palestinians and the Israelis, it's that they are brothers from the same father. No, although Hagar and Ishmael don't form part of God's chosen nation, they do form a nation of their own who God longs to bless through the nation of Israel, through whom all nations of the earth will be blessed because of Israel's Messiah, our Lord Jesus. And it's so interesting to read accounts of how God's angels, Jesus himself, continue to appear to people from the Arab world, calling them to himself because he is the God who loves all the nations of the earth. Ishmael's name means God hears. And when people from the Arab nations call to God, he still hears and saves. What is Hagar's response to all of this? Well, have a look at verse 13. Hagar is the only one who speaks to God in this story. And she does something even more remarkable. Hagar gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. 
Up to this point, there's been a lot of naming going on in the book of Genesis. Adam names all of the animals. Adam names his wife Eve. Eve names her third son Seth. Cain names a city after himself. But Hagar is the first person in all of Scripture to name God. She does so out of worship, out of her personal experience of God. And what a wonderful name this is for us today. You are the God who sees me. Are you lonely today? God sees. Are you grieving? God sees. Are you fearful? God sees. Are you misunderstood? God sees. Are you sinful? God sees. Are you slandered? God sees. And in the Bible, when God sees, he cares. And more than that, we can say that God knows. God has experienced. And with this thought, we'll close. In this passage, we read how Hagar is accused of violence, even though she doesn't open her mouth in the story, and how, in fact, she suffers real violence herself. The very, the very same words are used of another servant in Scripture, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, our Lord Jesus. Maybe we fear or resent being asked to go through a difficult and painful situation today. Then consider Jesus and what he experienced to bring us his salvation. Isaiah says he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Yet surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for your transgressions. He was crushed for my iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. God never asks us to do something that he has not first done for us. And perhaps he's calling you to go through a dark valley. He's gone through ahead of you and promises to walk with you. Perhaps he's calling you this morning to come to him for the very first time, to turn from our own way and to turn to him. It'll cost you but it cost him everything to open up the way for you to come back to him. What's stopping you from confessing your sin, asking him to forgive you, and opening up your whole life to God, thereby seeing the God who sees you? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, your word touches us in different ways today. 
and we pray that we would just be quiet and hear from you and then respond to you. I pray for any who might be going through a really tough time, a difficult situation, not knowing what to do. I pray, Lord, that you'd grant them the courage just to find someone who could pray with them or also just to cry out to you from their own hearts, to be honest and open, to share with you what you already know. Then, Lord Jesus, I pray for any who might not know you yet today. I ask, Lord Jesus, that you'd give them the courage just to cry out to you from their hearts, to say those three little words, uh, thank you, please, and sorry. Lord Jesus, thank you for dying for me. I'm sorry for what I've done wrong. Please come and take control of my life. Thank you that your answer to that prayer is always yes. And then, Lord, give them the courage to, to tell someone about that and get further direction from, from your word. But we thank you. We thank you that everything that we experience today is because of you. And we commit the rest of our day into your hands. In Jesus' name, amen.